0: Welcome to Immigration 360. In today's episode, we will cover legal and individual implications of immigration policy and how it affects individuals who are migrating. With me to discuss this, we have Alex Miller. Alex Miller is a Tucson native currently working as an immigration attorney and an immigration justice advocate. She primarily works with detained asylum seekers in the state of Arizona and asylum seekers awaiting access to asylum at the Arizona-Nogales border. She has done extensive advocacy on behalf of asylum seekers, aiming to bolster asylum access and fight for the dignity of migrants seeking protection in the United States. So welcome, Alex. It's so nice to have you here today with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about how you got into immigration law? Yeah, I like to think
1: that it was happenstance, that it was almost an accident, but my mom reminds me that I apparently wrote my like undergrad college application essay about immigration, and there have been kind of this, this constant thread of immigration in the background through my life, and I think it's because I'm from Tucson, it's because I'm from the borderlands, and it's just an issue that is omnipresent and, and has existed my whole life. When I went to law school, I went knowing that I wanted to help, knowing that I wanted to invest in my community. And I took the alternate path. I went corporate because I was scared wanted to pay off my loans. But ultimately, that desire brought me home. And I'm really glad it did.
0: Thank you for sharing. That's so powerful. I love that. It's been a theme that's like reoccurred throughout your life. That's when you yeah. know. <laughs> that's awesome. I know you have a lot of years of experience, which is wonderful. Um, So given your experience, what reasons for migration have you witnessed among individuals who you've worked with and who you have provided services for?
1: So I think in a way, the types of reasons people migrate, it kind of varies based on the ways you're engaging with migrants, right? And the kind of filters and funnels that people go through before they, they end up in your hands. So for me, I've primarily worked with asylum seekers, individuals who are fleeing harm, who have fear-based claims. And that's not because most migrants are asylum seekers, it's because of the nature of the work that I've, I've been doing. Most of my work for the past two and a half years have been with folks in detention centers here in Arizona. And based on my position, I was only representing asylum seekers. The same could be said for the individuals I worked with at the border. Because of kind of my mandate, I ended up working almost exclusively with people fleeing harm.
0: Okay. So within the category of harm, have you found certain like subcategories at all? Yeah. So I think there's
1: a broad swath of different types of cases you encounter A lot of it varies geographically, the types of cases you see from from different regions. I think also there's kind of a a misunderstanding or misconception between kind of what is an asylum seeker and, and what is asylum and what rights does a migrant have when they are just an asylum seeker. And when we're talking about immigration, at least from the other side, a lot of people frame it as you know illegal immigrants, like all these illegal immigrants crossing the border. But when we're talking about asylum seekers, they have a right to protection and they have a right to seek protection in the United States. And that right doesn't depend on whether they will eventually win their asylum case. So what we do see, unfortunately, is a lot of people who are fleeing very real harm, mm-hmm. um, whether it's domestic violence or gang-based violence, most often in Central America, who have really difficult roads ahead of them because those types of asylum claims tend to be weaker based on the legal framework here in the United States. That doesn't mean the harm they're fleeing is less real. That doesn't mean they're less deserving and that doesn't mean that they don't have a right to seek asylum.
0: Right? Yeah, thanks for that point of clarification. I've also kind of heard that a lot. The confusion between like asylum seeking and who like how how that works out and how that plays like real time going into the next question do current immigration policies have an appropriate approach to respond to all the reasons why someone would migrate
1: i mean the fast answer is no both universally and both when we're talking you know more specifically about asylum seekers i think a lot of folks would have heard chatter about pathways to legal immigration pathways for migrant seasonal migrant workers pathways for more access to work visas um, more broadly. But then looking at asylum, we have a relatively archaic framework that came out of World War II that was meant to address primarily persecution perpetrated by the state, like looking at Nazi Germany, right? Persecution based on who a person is perpetrated by the state. And unfortunately, that's not the reality that a lot of asylum seekers are facing. A lot are fleeing from failed states or states where the rule of of law doesn't exist everywhere and where the state truly can't protect them from other persecutors. And we need to find ways to expand the way we understand asylum to make sure
0: that no one is returned to harm. Mm -hmm. So I guess what would policies need in order to address it in a way that's more responsive to what we're seeing? What, like, what do you think that would look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, immigration is a really contentious subject right now. Um, and it's difficult to really move the ball forward in terms of real policy change. But I, I do think that there are, there's some low hanging fruit, some things that could be done, that would fundamentally change access to asylum. And I think one is, kind of expanding our notion of who a persecutor can be mm-hmm. right like having a deeper understanding of private persecution and when that you know when an individual who's facing private persecution should still be granted asylum right now you can be granted asylum if the government is not involved directly in the persecution but the standard to prove your case, if it's not a government persecutor is absurdly high. You basically have to demonstrate that the government is unwilling and unable to protect you from that private persecutor. And the immigration judges that we encounter at least here in Arizona are very hesitant to accept any of those explanations. Even when there's pretty clear country conditions, evidence of the government's inability to protect citizens. I think beyond that, one of the biggest issues of the framework is being persecuted in and of itself does not mean you, sh- you will be granted asylum. You have to be persecuted for a specific reason, uh, mm-hmm. meaning your race, nationality, religion, political opinion, or being a member of a PSG, a protected social group. And for the most part, a lot of folks that are fleeing gang-based violence or family-based violence, domestic abuse, have a difficult time defining their particular social group, PSG. And the case law is very confusing. It is very abundant and very difficult to navigate. And immigration judges, again, tend to not accept very many PSGs. One classic one that often is accepted by judges is kind of gender identity or LGBTQ status. And theoretically, a PSG should be a group that is easily definable and understood by the community, a group of individuals that have some sort of immutable characteristic and a group that is socially distinct. And that's just as vague as it sounds. Yeah. Right. So it's it just becomes like really, really hard to litigate, especially when you're facing immigration judges who are who are not really judges, who are administrative appointees, who have a vested interest in saying no. So I guess kind of moving, moving forward, the other thing I would say is it would be really important, I think, to move immigration proceedings to either like a truly non-adversarial proceeding where you're fact-finding and looking for the truth and where migrants have access to counsel um, and judges not have a stake and are not incentivized to say no or to move it towards an independent uh, judiciary where you're not like basically the way it is now you have like a migrant who goes into court they have the right to an attorney they can pay most of them cannot and then they're up against a government attorney who's representing the government and then a government judge who's also supposed to be impartial but ultimately representing the government
0: Thank you for that response. Like, I know it was a really hard question, so. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many things we could do. I know, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I appreciate your expertise. Moving on to more specific policies that you have experience with. So which policies have restricted people from seeking asylum?
1: Yeah, so I think it's really interesting, and it kind of loops back to our discussion about the difference between being an asylum seeker and an asylee, Mm -hmm. right? And there's kind of these two critical moments that I have engaged with asylum seekers. And one is just baseline access to asylum, your ability to go to the border and say, I fear return to my home and would like to ask for asylum. And then after that, that moment in court, when you're trying to help someone articulate their claim and defend their right to stay in the country as an asylee and what we saw in particular starting in early 2019 was a number of policies that directly impacted migrants ability to even seek asylum at the border rather than kind of like what happens later when you're in court and the first main one was called MPP or the so-called Migrant Protection Protocols. You'll also hear them referred to as remain in Mexico or sometimes less favorably as the Migrant Persecution Protocols.
0: Mm.
1: And basically what that policy did was tell asylum seekers, look, you can apply for asylum, but you can't wait in the United States while you do so, we're gonna send you back to Mexico. Mm. And this is impractical and really inhumane for a number of reasons. One is that there's limited access to attorneys and support from Mexico, and border towns are very dangerous for, for migrants, in particular following MPP because it created essentially a business for the cartels. Yeah. Migrants who were returned were then targeted for extortion and kidnapping after return, and a number of individuals as a result of that targeted crime missed hearings and were ordered removed after having missed hearings and you know a startling number of individuals who were able to see their hearings through had their claims denied even individuals from countries that have kind of your stereotypical political asylum claims from countries that are in clear tumult Mm -hmm. um another more recent policy uh would be title 42 or kind of the border closure as justified under this kind of archaic or little heard of public health law called Title 42. Basically, the US government used the pandemic as a pretext to shut the border, targeting almost surgically asylum seekers, saying that there wasn't the capacity to safely process individuals at the border. And there there are any number of reasons that I believe this was pretextual the public health community resoundingly responded that like this doesn't actually serve any, you know, public health benefits. But I think, you know, the most obvious to me is that the the world did go on, like the borders still continued to process billions of dollars of trade. People still went to Mexico for spring break. People still crossed on a day-to-day basis. I I did, Mm -hmm. right? I, I crossed the border once or twice a week for, for a large portion of, of the pandemic. And to say that we can't safely, or don't have the, the money or infrastructure capacity to process asylum seekers safely, especially when such a large portion of federal employees at the port, CBP or border patrol, were not complying with, with masks or other safety precautions to help protect people, um, is really just a slap in the face, right? It means that we're unwilling to prioritize the people in deepest need. Yeah. And I think that's sad.
0: Yeah. It is sad. And it's interesting that you you said, like even yourself, like you've crossed. But about the people going on vacation, like everything you said, like I, I agree with, and it is frustrating. And yes, it's spring still, break
1: rocky point still happens.
0: Right. And it's still in place today. Title 42. And yeah. what I've heard is that I mean they keep saying like oh it's going to be lifted but it keeps getting pushed back and it's just it it doesn't look very promising
1: it's a political hot potato and the can keep some kicking getting kicked down the road um, and i think part of it is kind of this narrative that you know it's been closed for so long now what happens when you open the doors oh wow right like all of that backlog are they going to try to rush the front of the line mm. and i think that's really unfair. You create a problem and then you use that problem to justify the continued existence of a cruel and inhumane policy. Yeah. At, At some point, you know, we're gonna have to navigate that. And, you know, you can use the Delta variant as another excuse to kick the can down the road, but there will always be an excuse. And I think it's easier to ignore the humanity of people when you're just looking at numbers. It is impossible to do so when you're on the ground amongst those who are being impacted by these policies.
0: Yeah. And so many people are so far removed from like the ground. So it's like, it's, it's yeah. easy to just kind of brush aside and be like, oh, it makes sense to close the border because COVID is so transmissible and X, Y, Z. But the reality of it is like so much deeper than that. And I'm glad you, you pointed that out.
1: Yeah, it's bigger than the numbers.
0: Yeah. Now, speaking a little bit to your personal experiences, what has your biggest takeaway been from working in the field of immigration law and asylum seeking in the United States? I think it's hard because
1: this type of work is so frustrating. And I think you can like hear that in everything that I'm saying, there's so little justice in the way the system currently runs. And I think I would like to take it somewhere kind of happier and somewhere more hopeful. And I think that's just the extraordinary resilience and capacity for for forgiveness of the people that we seek to support and serve and how inspirational their hope is. Because amidst all of this you know, anti-immigrant sentiment and negative policies and waiting indefinitely at the border and all of the violence that they faced on, on their way here, they still have a hope for a version of the United States and a version of, of America that, that maybe doesn't exist but I'd like to see the world through their eyes. And I'd like to to hope that we could be a country that lives up to their expectations. And I think a, a lot gets lost again, and like looking at these individuals as, as numbers, as a big picture, instead of as individual people with different stories and backgrounds and experiences and lives,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but just learning Learning through them and learning what strength and resiliency tr- like truly is, and to have that sort of faith is incredible.
0: That's powerful stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, I feel I feel moved by like hearing you say that, and like I I can yeah I can just feel your energy, so I appreciate you sharing.
1: Well, there's like a lot of weird focus, or I think weird focus on like the people doing the work that I think abstracts from the people yeah who are there and I think any chance you have to kind of divert the conversation to who are those people and what do they stand for and what have they fought for Mm -hmm. because they're also part of this justice movement right they are fighting for themselves as well
0: right yeah going off of that then what is something you would like the listeners to know
1: I think It's really easy, especially right now. You look at like everything that's going on in the world and it feels kind of hopeless. Like you've got Afghanistan, you've got like Haiti, you've got Ida, New Orleans, and a lot to distract you in the news. But we're so capable. We have so many resources, both kind of as a collective and as individuals. And I'd like people to kind of take ownership of that power of their ability to to have an impact. And I think that's just not forgetting like this this is still happening I know it's back page news now but the border is still a human rights disaster for asylum seekers and other migrants mm-hmm. um, and there are things that I think um, people can do and I and maybe I'm jumping the gun just like ever ever so slightly with getting to that but a lot of people feel disempowered they feel distant but I think you know if if you can donate whether it's to mutual aid or whether it's to an organization, do it. If you can't, like have that hard conversation with your racist uncle or call your senator or congressperson or post that article that you read about what's going on to try to keep the government accountable, right? Because if people forget, if they lose that rage, if they lose that passion, nothing, nothing will change. And then for folks that you know, kind of live where this is happening to the extent you you speak Spanish or you are an attorney or a doctor or a psychologist, there are ways to to directly get involved. And I think, you know, just looking up what what nonprofits are working in your area, taking note of who's doing the work and thinking about how you could get plugged in because there is incredible need. And unfortunately, Supporting migrant populations is completely dependent on philanthropy and volunteers.
0: Yeah. Thanks for including the action item in your response. <laughs> <laughs> Before we conclude the interview, is there anything else you would like to add? I think I'd just like to take it back to, again,
1: trying to somehow be hopeful in the midst of it all. Um, there's been a lot of movement in in district courts and the Supreme Courts, whether it's about immigration or otherwise, and a lot of it is not settling the way we'd hope. And I think that for a long time there was this hope that the courts would be the big defenders of human rights, and I don't I don't know that that's true. Like I don't know that that the courts will protect us. So I think what it boils down to then is us making our voices heard and making sure that those who are supposed to represent us in the government are pushing that agenda forward so that we can make longer lasting change for the better. And hopefully bringing more attention to these issues can do that. So just you know, thanks to everyone out there who is, who is engaged, who is listening, who is uh, doing their best to make a difference.
0: Oh, what a wonderful way to conclude this interview. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're <laughs> welcome. Thanks for thanks for having me here today. Yeah, thanks for your time and your expertise. I really appreciate it. And thanks to the listeners for sticking around. We'll catch you next time.